Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Do you want to transform the way you learn? As regular listeners of this show know, Himalaya is a new audio-first learning platform with over 150 courses on personal and professional development taught by instructors like author Malcolm Gladwell, divorce court judge Lynn Toller, mindfulness expert Sharon Salzberg, and many other thought leaders. What Himalaya is doing is different than a typical podcast as these are carefully curated audio courses rather than just more folks talking. Each Himalaya audio course is organized so that each lesson is a digestible 15-minute episode that focuses on the big ideas. Think of it as a pack of snack-sized lessons that will nourish your brain. It's the best way for busy people like you and me to fit learning into our lives, and Himalaya's curated learning tracks make it easy to find courses you'll love on the topics you need to transform your life. Excelling at remote work, speaking with impact, yoga for life, anti-racism at work, top mental health tools, start your first online business. These are just some of Himalaya's extensive library of practical and transformative courses. If you're looking to grow, there's something for you. For a limited time, Think Like an Economist listeners can go to Himalaya.com and enter promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. That's Himalaya.com. Enter the promo code ECON at checkout for a 14-day free trial. Naz, imagine economic resources as water. So the supply of goods and services and consumption and investment, everything in the economy is water. And all of these things flow in different directions, along different pipes, in and out of tanks with valves. There are levers you can adjust, and we can see the effect these have on the flow of the water. Do you remember Bill Phillips? Yeah, the colourful economist we heard about in the last episode, who was behind the Phillips curve, which links the output gap to inflation. Yeah, Bill Phillips was quite an engineer. And back in the 1940s, he built this crazy Rube Goldberg-like contraption that was a liquid model of the entire macroeconomy. It's a thing of beauty. It's a machine around two metres tall and a metre deep and a metre wide, so like a really big refrigerator. It has tubes and tanks and pumps and levers. Water flows from a tube called income to a tank called taxes and down to a box called government spending. And that's just one of the many paths the water can take. And he gave it this name that just rolls right off the tongue. The Monetary National Income Analog Computer, or the MONIAC for short. It shows how a change in one part of the economy will affect another. He'd calibrated the rate at which water flowed between tanks to match how he thought the economy worked. You can adjust a lever to raise the interest rate and see how much less money will then flow into the investment tank. The water flows from one tank to another and keeps flowing until it reaches a new equilibrium. In some sense, that's how the economy works, with money and goods flowing across different sectors and different uses until the economy reaches a new equilibrium. This enormous Moniac machine 
is an example of a physical model that shows the links or the interdependencies in the economy. I'm Justin Wolfers, and our topic on Think Like an Economist today is a macroeconomic model that pulls together all of the interdependencies in the macroeconomy. And I'm Betsy Stevenson. We teach you the tools and models from economics that will transform your life. Nazaran Tavakoli Far joins us. So the model we're going to dig into today, you call the Fed model. Now, why is that? Because it's an example of the sort of approach and the ideas that the Federal Reserve uses to predict what will happen in the economy if certain things were to change. It's the type of model that can help policymakers, like Fed policymakers, see how their proposals will work their way through the economy. It's not just an example of how the Federal Reserve thinks about the macro economy. This sort of model is what economic policymakers in Washington use to try to think about what's going to happen to the macro economy and what kind of policy changes they need to make. And the kind of thing that economic forecasters on Wall Street use to try to figure out where the economy is heading. What's neat about the Fed model is that it's a way to bring together a bunch of ideas that we've already discussed about how the economy operates. The key idea of a model is that we can think about all of these ideas at the same time and see how they interact. A giant liquid-filled machine like Moniac is one way of seeing the connections between different parts of the economy, but it's not the only way. Another approach economists use is to write down each of the major relationships as mathematical equations that describe different parts of the economy. They're a bit like Moniac in that there are mathematical relationships that describe how liquid moves through pipes just as there are mathematical relationships that describe how money and labor and goods and services move through the economy. Today's macroeconomists use computers instead of pipes and water. They'll take the key relationships that they believe describe the economy and program them into a computer, and the models can help us track the many different variables and sectors that make up the economy. The problem with solving mathematical equations or using purely computer-based models is that they can seem a bit like a black box because they simply spit out predictions. Computers don't really do a good job explaining why they see the economy moving in one direction or another. That's why it's actually important, even for economic forecasters, to check your intuition. So what do economists like you do when you're looking at data and you want to see how changes will work through the economy? When I used to serve on the panel of economic advisors for the US Congressional Budget Office, one of our roles was to ask the hard questions of the forecasting staff. And I always knew I'd asked a good question when I saw the chief forecaster sketching little charts in the margin of his notebook so he could figure out what was really happening. That's because economists often think about models in terms of graphs. A graph is just another way of showing a relationship. Remember that graphs are just pictures that tell stories. Each curve in a graph tells a story about the relationship between different parts of the economy. But sometimes it's just as easy to understand that story using words. That's what I tell my students who are afraid of graphs. Focus on the story, not the picture. When I was a member of the Council of Economic Advisors, one of our jobs was to produce economic forecasts based on the proposals in the president's budget. Because the president and his advisors want to know what's going to happen to the macro economy if the president's budget gets passed into law. They have to focus on things like the key economic forces that the Fed model describes, like interest rates, output, inflation, and the interdependencies between them. And that's what macroeconomic models are all about, understanding the interdependencies across the entire economy. So as I understand it, the Fed model involves three key relationships, 
or stories. Can you remind us what they are? The first is the story of where interest rates come from. You can think of the real interest rate that borrowers pay as being the risk-free rate plus a risk premium. The risk-free rate is determined by the monetary policy of the Federal Reserve or the Bank of England or the European Central Bank or whatever your central bank is. The central bank determines the risk-free rate, but when you and I want to borrow money, we go to a regular bank and they're also going to add on a risk premium. That extra interest a lender charges you to account for the risk of lending out their money. You know, if something happens and you don't pay it back, for example. A lot of what financial markets are about is buying and selling these risks. And so this risk premium is determined by the financial sector. So this story about where interest rates come from was a big deal in a previous episode in which we gave the story a name, calling it the MP curve, because it summarises the role that monetary policy plays. So this first story is about what determines the real interest rate. Now let's dig into the second story, which is about how the real interest rate affects the economy. A lower real interest rate leads people to spend more because the real interest rate is the opportunity cost of spending money today rather than in the future. And so the lower the real interest rate, the lower that opportunity cost, which will lead consumers to spend instead of save. A lower real interest rate will also lead businesses to invest more in big projects because the cost of borrowing to fund those projects is lower. And because the lower interest rate leads the currency to depreciate, it also leads net exports to rise. All of this means that total spending will rise and businesses will expand their output to meet this demand. And this story says that a lower real interest rate leads to more output. We call this story the IS curve because it summarises investment and spending decisions. And finally, we have the third story, which we told in our last episode. This is the story of how a stronger economy leads to bottlenecks, which can cause inflation. So whenever output exceeds potential output, you should expect higher inflation. Or if output is below potential, businesses will lower their prices to try to stimulate more spending, which leads to lower inflation. This story links the real economy and how much output people want to buy with inflation. And because it was first discovered by Bill Phillips, it's often called the Phillips curve. As I think through these three stories, or relationships, I see there's a lot of interdependencies at work here. You bet. The MP curve tells us that the central bank and financial markets jointly determine the real interest rate. And the IS curve tells you that changes in that real interest rate will affect how much stuff people want to buy and hence how much output businesses will produce. And the Phillips curve says that how much output businesses produce has important consequences for inflation. Understanding these three relationships or stories, as well as their interdependencies, can help you see how a change in one part of the economy will affect another part of the economy. A macroeconomic model is simply about holding these key relationships or stories in your head at the same time so that you can track and take account of all of these interdependencies and feedback loops. Economists call this style of thinking general equilibrium because you're thinking about the new equilibrium, not just in one part of the economy, that's what they call partial equilibrium, but you're thinking more generally about how everything shifts given all of these interdependencies. Master this skill of thinking this way and you'll be able to see how changes in one part of the economy will ripple out to affect other parts of the economy. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. 
So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Models like the Fed model can help us predict what's going to happen, and especially if there's a big shock to the economy. If we can identify the shock, then we can predict how things will turn out. One way of thinking about the economy is there are zillions of things that could happen. There could be a drought or a pandemic or oil prices could skyrocket or there could be a financial crisis or productivity could slow or the exchange rate could fall or, well, just about anything, really. If you think this way, trying to figure out all the effects of these zillions of possibilities, frankly, it just seems daunting. This is the value of thinking systematically. We don't need to think about a zillion different things that might happen because in reality, they all fit into just a few broad categories. Learn about those types of shocks and you'll have the tools you need to understand the zillions of things that might happen. And the beauty of the Fed model is it makes clear there are only three important macroeconomic shocks. There are spending shocks, financial shocks and supply shocks. And each of these macroeconomic shocks is related to one of the key relationships or stories of the Fed model. Our first macroeconomic shock is spending shocks. This is related to overall demand in the economy, or what we call aggregate expenditure. That's what the IS curve is all about. Now to recap, aggregate expenditure is the total of four factors. Consumption, investment, government purchases, and net exports, which is exports minus imports. Any change in consumption, investment, government purchases, or net exports will affect the amount of aggregate expenditure there is at any given real interest rate. More of any type of spending or more of aggregate expenditure leads businesses to expand their output, raising GDP, just like less spending leads businesses to reduce their output, lowering GDP. Our next macroeconomic shock has to do with financial shocks. Any change in borrowing conditions will impact the real interest rate, which is usually summarized by the MP curve. Now, remember, the real interest rate could change due to the central bank setting a new rate, or there could be a change in the risk premium, which is determined by financial markets. Finally, we have supply shocks. Think about what happens to businesses if all of a sudden it becomes much more expensive for them to produce the stuff that they're producing. While their production costs have gone up, they're going to have to raise their prices to maintain their profit margins. And those higher prices across the board are going to mean inflation. So a supply shock could occur if inputs become more expensive or productivity matters. And if your productivity were to disappoint, then you have to use more resources than you'd hoped to produce a certain level of output, which again raises your production costs. Don't forget that exchange rates are also important. A lot of businesses may use inputs that are imported. The exchange rate will impact the price, and that can ripple down to changing production costs for businesses that use imported goods. Whatever the cause of an adverse supply shock, there'll be more inflation at any given level of output. We can also think about how each of these shocks reverberates through the whole economy. So let's try to put this all together. We've just had a huge shock to the global economy, and that's the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Can we use the Fed model to understand the effect of the pandemic and the subsequent policy responses? Absolutely. This Fed model is exactly what policymakers and central bankers use to try to understand what's happening with the macroeconomy and to decide how they're going to respond. We saw central bankers and federal policymakers respond quite quickly to the pandemic, and it's because of what they saw coming out of the Fed model. And so what happened immediately at the start of the pandemic? First thing that happened was a demand shock. People weren't spending. They're worried about their economic future. They cut back on their spending. Businesses saw an unknown future, and so they put their investment plans on ice. Together, those two factors forced aggregate expenditure down. That's a negative demand shock. There was also a supply shock as sellers found it hard to run their businesses at the same cost that they were used to being able to do without the pandemic. So we're going to look at how policymakers and central bankers use the Fed model. But first, let's go into these two shocks. You mentioned the demand shock and the supply shock. Let's start with the demand shock. What was happening here? The demand shock is simply people are spending less money, businesses are spending less money, and exporters are earning less money overseas. All of that means business is going to produce less, so output's going to decrease. And we know from the Phillips curve, when businesses produce less... Then inflation is going to be lower. And how about the supply shock? What was happening on that side? Well, many businesses were forced to shut down. Those that remained found it really difficult to get inputs. Remember how hard it was to get toilet paper? Well, imagine trying to get all the inputs to run your business. And a lot of businesses had to take extra precautions that meant extra costs in order to contend with doing business with COVID. Whichever way you look at it, COVID led the costs of doing business to rise. Which means higher prices at any given level of output. And so that's one of the key lessons of the Fed model. Higher production costs, higher inflation. So you've talked about the demand shock and the supply shock, and through both of them we have lower output. However, the demand shock has pushed prices down, whereas the supply shock has pushed prices up. So what happened with prices overall? It's actually kind of complicated. So the stuff that continued to be available throughout the entire pandemic, there, the inflation rate on those goods actually fell a little bit. But then there was a whole lot of goods that you couldn't buy at all, at any price. Again, this is consistent with the Fed model, which says when you have a demand shock and a supply shock, you have forces that somewhat offset each other in terms of their impact on inflation. And before we move on to see what central banks and policymakers did, I've got one last question. You've been talking about less output due to both of these shocks. Were there any other major impacts on the economy? When there's less output and output fell dramatically, employers need fewer workers to make that output. And so employment fell dramatically and unemployment in fact rose to its highest level since the Great Depression. So how did policymakers and central bankers use the Fed model in response to all of this? Well, let's think about what policymakers want to do. When they see output falling and unemployment rising, they want to boost output so they can get unemployment back down. So monetary policy, they reduced interest rates enormously straight away to try to get people to spend rather than save. Right, because by lowering interest rates, you're pushing the MP curve down. Which then, remember the IS curve? Lower real interest rates lead to more aggregate expenditure. At least that was the hope. 
The challenge is that monetary policy can push interest rates down, but they can only go down so far. It's hard to push interest rates below zero. So the goal of monetary policy is to make it cheap to spend today and to reduce the incentive to try to save for the future by lowering interest rates. But once interest rates are at zero, monetary policy is kind of out of ammunition. So if you're out of ammunition on the monetary front, it's time to turn to? Fiscal policy. And that's why governments around the world unleash their fiscal cannons. What they want to do then is they want to try to boost output as much as possible. Now, this is tricky in a pandemic because I'm not trying to push you into restaurants that you could catch COVID in. But I do want to make sure that people who've lost their jobs can pay their rent because if they're not paying their rent, then their landlord is losing income and then their landlord isn't maybe buying groceries and so on and so on. So it's not just that you want to get people spending. You want to keep everyone afloat so they can survive until the end of the pandemic. Right. And one of the things we saw was that people, they get really scared with something like a pandemic. So lots of people saved a lot more money. But people at the bottom of the income distribution, well, they didn't really have that luxury to save a lot more. And so what we want to make sure is they're not coming out of the pandemic so broke that they're going to be cutting back their spending for years trying to catch up what they lost during the pandemic. So a good fiscal policymaker, like a good macroeconomic model, is always looking forward and thinking about the future consequences of anything that they're doing. So how does the Fed model help us think about the actions that policymakers and central bankers make? Let's think about the MONIAC, the Bill Phillips model of the economy. When we think about what a central banker is doing or what policymakers doing when they increase spending is, well, they're just lifting up one of these levers. Opening the gates. Watching the water flow and hoping that we get to a better equilibrium. Without creating a flood downstream. When the central bank lowers rates... They might stimulate aggregate demand, and by stimulating aggregate demand, they can raise output because of those lower rates. By raising output, they'll put upward pressure on inflation. You might think that that's bad, but if we're coming out of a period of time like a demand shock, which is putting downward pressure on inflation, then you can see them as a countervailing force that's sort of trying to keep inflation to where it was prior to the pandemic. How would things have panned out if we didn't have the Fed model and if policymakers and central bankers weren't using it? Well, the Fed model just summarises the state of knowledge among macroeconomists today. And I think it's fair to say we understand a lot more than we did 100 years ago. As a result, recessions this century have been a little less frequent. They've hopefully been a little less deep. And the pandemic had the potential to destroy the economy. And we're looking somewhat optimistic, and it's partly because of the policy responses that have come out of the diagnosis that policymakers were able to make because of the Fed model. I really feel like, in a lot of ways, we saw federal governments around the world respond more quickly than we've ever seen them respond, and we saw really positive outcomes from that. This could have been worse than the Great Depression. By the way, that's the bumper sticker. It may even be on the gravestone of macroeconomics. Could have been worse. (laughs) We saw spending and therefore employment start to really recover in May or June. The pandemic was just getting started in terms of lives lost. The economy was already turned around and it was already turned around because of the actions that both central bankers and federal policymakers were taking. 
We started this episode talking about Moniac, a big bunch of connected tubes that are sort of a metaphor for how the economy works. And interdependency is the heart of macroeconomics. We no longer represent this using tubes of water. Instead, we've got the Fed model. But understanding those interdependencies is what macroeconomics is all about. So this is a lot to get our heads around. Are there things we can do over the coming days so that we can really understand the Fed model and how it's used? I hope our listeners have become more confident reading the economics press over the past season as we've explored some of these ideas. Next time you read one of these economics articles, what I want you to do is take whatever it is they're describing and think about what the second and third round effects are because that's what the Fed model's all about, understanding the interdependencies, the feedback loops and the effects of one thing elsewhere in the economy. Thanks for listening. There's a lot more from this show and others like it on the Himalaya Learning Platform. Himalaya Learning provides bite-sized courses from world-class thinkers and industry experts for you to enjoy in the app, on the go. For exclusive content, including bonus episodes and supplemental materials, go to Himalaya.com econ and enter promo code econ at checkout for your first 14 days free. Himalaya.com slash econ has loads of great shows like ours, so try it out using the promo code econ at checkout to get your first 14 days free. It's time to think like an economist.